Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. And hello, welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life. I remain Chris from earlier. With me again is Kev. Kev, say hi to everybody. Hey guys, hi everyone. Thank you for having me, Chris. Good morning. It's really early in Australia. Literally just woke up. So thank you for having me on. I am the co-host of a show called Britpop Banter, where myself and Leslie go back to the 90s. And in this season, we're counting down uh, the top 50 albums of Britpop. We just covered a big one yesterday, actually, which, uh, which went live today. We covered Oasis Be Here Now. Just like the album, we went way over time. So uh, thank you for your support as well, Chris. Thank you. You've been there from this very start. Oh, no problem at all. I'm going to uh, be listening to that later in the day, and then I'm going to listen to Be Here Now for the first time in like 20 years. It's an interesting one because Leslie looked back at it with really fond memories. It's tied to a lot of different stories for her, so she, has, she really likes that album. And for me, I sort of feel that I'm in the journalist camp where when it came out, I really thought this was one of the best albums ever made. And now listening back to it, it's, it's a complete mess. So it's an interesting conversation. I look forward to finding out what I think about it with 20 years hindsight, because I have some room in my heart for a giant sprawling mess. At some point, we're going to cover Sandinista by The Clash on here. Right. I guarantee 20 minutes of it is going to be whoever poor sucker i get to listen to it asking why it is so long <laughs> well i think oasis was 71 minutes you know and you feel every one of those minutes i did anyway especially with all around the world oh god it's the 90s man we had the technology to make an album last 80 minutes and nobody stopped to ask if we should we also were on copious amounts of drugs, and we thought it was a good idea to make it. <laughs> I should have done more drugs in the 1990s. I probably would have enjoyed this work more. <laughs> and we're off the rails immediately, as <laughs> listeners know was going to happen. And Kevin and I are here today talking about the Tragically Hips 1992 album, Fully Completely. Because I had to get somebody who was not from Canada to find someone who has not heard this already. So. How do you explain the Tragically Hip to someone who's not from Canada? 13 top 10 albums in 27 years, monster hits, sold out stadium tours across the country, a generation defined by a band that, strangely, either would not or could not expand beyond our borders. The very fact that they did not export, and how protective that made us of them. Our gang, our band, who we would not share. Gord Downey getting sick, that final tour adding dates in every city so everyone who wanted to see them play one last time would get the chance. The activism, the national outpouring of grief when the man finally passed. All of these things are part of the tragically hip, but none of them tell the whole story. This band was the 90s in Canada, in the same way Nirvana was for Americans, or Oasis or Blur were for Brits. And they cast a shadow across Canadian popular music that can't be overstated. When the Tragically Hip played their final concert, the CBC cancelled its scheduled programming to air it, without commercials, and one out of three Canadians tuned in to watch. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau attended the show in person. When Gord passed, Parliament convened to mourn him. Canada, arguably, 
got a little carried away in the 90s as far as the tragically hip goes. By the time the hip released fully completely, they were already far and away the biggest band in Canada. Their previous two releases were both on their way to eventually going 10 times platinum, and they'd released a number of songs that, even now, sum up a time and place in our country's history better than any documentary ever could. But this was the record that affected me. With Fully Completely, the Tragically Hip brought a sense of tension to their music. They stepped away from their blues rock past and became something fully, completely their own. This is when they stopped being part of the music world from which they'd come and started building a world that was uniquely their own. Or maybe it's just that when this came out, I was 14 years old and was approaching the age at which people can start making informed decisions about what music they like. Whereas when their previous one to this came out, I was 13 and had not yet reached that age. Either way, I maintain a soft spot for Fully Completely and a soft spot for the hip. I absolutely saw the last tour when they came through Calgary. I absolutely still get a little teary-eyed when Courage comes on the radio. And I absolutely still take perverse pride in the fact that, for whatever reason, nobody outside of this country were interested in buying what they were selling. Our gang, after all. Our band, who we would not share. So, Kev, you'd never heard fully completely by the Tragically Hip, and now you have. What do you think? I think, <laughs> I, think I may break your heart. Look, first of all, they're not my type of band. Um, they, to me, and this, I guess this is sort of what we, what we need to discuss, is to me, they sound very American. They sound the epitome of what an American band in the 90s would sound like. So I'm kind of I'm curious as to why they sort of didn't break through into America. Was it the fact that grunge was sort of so strong at that point that these guys didn't quite reach the cusp of grunge? So I, I think before I sort of get into the album, I need to sort of understand a little bit more about them and why you feel they didn't get into the, to the States as much. Well, I mean, I think probably a lot of it was the fact that they were so deeply culturally specific as a piece of music. Just like going over their songs on this album, like at the 100th Meridian is about the line of longitude that separates the prairie provinces from central and Atlantic Canada. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not something that somebody in a different <laughs> country <laughs> yeah, is going to no. find hugely relevant to their heart. Even if if I die of vanity, promise me, promise me they'll bury me someplace I don't want to be. Dig me up and transport me unceremoniously away from the swollen city breeze, garbage bag trees, whispers of disease and acts of enormity. Lower me slowly, sadly, and properly and get right cooter to sing my eulogy is a objectively dope lyric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, looking, I did, I did look at some of their tracks and the lyrics. They are very specific to Canada's history. But I, I, I mean, I... Leslie, on our podcast, she really is into the, the meaning behind the lyrics. You know, so much so she knows where, you know, when we're written and why. And, and for me, I'm not a lyrics guy. If something's something catchy, I just like it. Yeah, it's interesting because Leslie, my co-host, she is all about the lyrics on songs and the meaning behind them. And she can sing, you know, you throw a song at her and she can immediately sing it back. Me, I have a shocking memory. So... For me, it's all about the catchiness of a song, you know, like just the sound of a song as opposed to the lyrics, which is why when I hear this band, I would automatically throw them into that American mid-90s period because the sound is so sort of similar. Do, I guess the question for you, Chris, is do you think they weren't heavy enough to sort of get into that grunge period with the likes of Nirvana and Green Day and, and the like? That might be, because I have heard these guys uncharitably described as Pearl Jam doing REM covers. <laughs> okay. And by the medium nineties REM were also not making heavy enough music. Yeah. For American contemporary radio. 
Look, this album is not for me. You know, we are, um, and it's so it's so funny because you know this this album sounds so U.S. or, or Canadian, yet it was recorded in the U.K., which blew my mind because I was, you know, at that time they were so entrenched in the beginnings of Britpop. You know, it was just on this cusp. So to record an album like this in the U.K. It's, it's quite surprising. Do you know why they recorded it in the UK? I'm not 100% why that decision was made. I know that shortly after this, they built their own studio in uh, Kingston, the town in which all of them live, obviously. But at this point, they had not gotten to build and own your own studio levels okay. of success yet. Yeah, okay. There's, and I don't know if, if this is a time to sort of go through the tracks, but it took me off guard is probably how I would look at this album. Probably like the album I threw at you completely took you off guard, you know. It was but, unexpected for sure. Oh god, yeah. I think both of us threw albums at each other that were very different to what we're probably used to. Do you know how how did these guys do in the UK? If the album was recorded in the UK, how did they actually fare over here? It did not chart in the US at all. It did not chart noteworthily in the UK either. But it did amazingly well in Canada, obviously. Yeah, it did spectacularly well in Canada. Uh, number one hit, 10 times platinum, locked in the trunk of a car, 50 mission cups, and Courage were just everywhere over the course of the year after it came out. There is something about these guys that just... And this is why when the end of the episode comes along, you're not going to break my heart. I'm aware <laughs> that nobody outside of Canada likes the Tragically Hip. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't I think 30 years to, I don't think that's down to the band I think in the UK that lighter American rock sound that the hip possess I don't think it ever got over well in the, in the UK we went from one extreme to the other we went through that American grunge the Nirvana, Green Day, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden all that sort of stuff but we, we shut the door on that really quickly when Britpop opened and we stayed with that really until the end of the decade. So I don't know if lighter rock had a place in the UK for us. That checks out. Here it was a lot of power pop bands and a lot of lighter campfire singing rock bands and like a weird amount of alt country, which I guess I shouldn't be surprised by. Alt country is country music from the northern parts of the United States and Canada is arguably the most northern part. Part of it, I think, might have been for the same reason that Britpop didn't export, mm. was that 90s were the last period pre-internet, where you could go all in on a regional style of music that appeals really hard to the people who are local to you. And Britpop did that for the UK, and bands like this did that for Canada. And grunge did do that for the US, mm. but their market is so huge that their regional music got treated like it was international. In spite of the fact that like, if I met somebody from the American Midwest and got him to list his 10 favorite bands from the mid-90s, I would not have heard of five of them. Wow. Okay, geez. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, you're probably right. But like a regional U.S. band is still selling a million, two million copies of a record. <laughs> which, which some of us will only hope and dream of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, look, my, my thoughts on the album. All right. If we, if we quickly sort of run through the tracks. Right? Yeah, hit me. All right, okay. So Courage, it took me off guard because this is obviously the first track. It's a little bit country. Yep. And <laughs> the way he says courage in the song can be a little bit annoying. However, 
it is quite a catchy song. Out of the the songs on the album, it's it's definitely one that I enjoyed the most. Let's say, yeah, it's it's definitely catchy. I would say it's a great track to kick off the album if you're a fan. And you know that song, it sounds like that song did really well in in Canada. Uh, it wound up going into the top ten and just all over the radio. It's still kind of all over the radio. Did they have any number ones? Uh, they absolutely did. Oh, which one went to number one? I could have looked that up, but. That's all right. So they had, what, five singles on this album? Four or five singles? So uh, Six singles, yeah. Locked in the Trunk of a Car, 50 Mission Cup, Courage at the 100th Meridian, Looking for a Place to Happen, and then the title track. Okay. So Looking for a Place to Happen, I've gone, it's okay. Nothing that, that really stood out. And, and is, can you talk me through like the meanings behind the, the songs a little bit? Like In terms of Courage, was there anything special around that, the meaning? Yes, Courage is about the uh, novelist Hugh McLennan. Okay. And lines from his 1959 novel, The Watch That Ends the Night, are being paraphrased in the final verse. What's the book about? I have not actually uh, read the book myself. Okay. <laughs> Generally, I'm probably not going to read it unless it has aliens or uh, monsters. or. <laughs> That's... But I don't, I don't think that was the book. No, that's frequently uh, my experience with fiction as well, if we're being completely honest. <laughs> Looking for a place to happen, I've said it was okay. Anything special about that? Not anything immediately apparent, no. Okay, and then at the 100th Meridian. Yep. This, yeah, this one is probably one of my favorites on the album. It's really, really catchy, this song. What's this about? Oh, I think he struggles to get the word mer meridian in the song, but yes. apart from that, it's... I mean, who puts meridian in a song in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> he is. It's interesting. Like, he's taking big swings. He's already got a love-it-or-hate-it kind of a singing voice. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the lyrics are doing that, like, Elvis Costello school of songwriting, where you put straight up too many words... Oh, yeah. You, you can tell that in this song. Can we talk about Pitch and Camera? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What the hell is this song? Oh, my God. <laughs> this song is all kinds of cray-cray. Um, I, I, I don't like the song. I find the, song, the chorus really annoying. His voice, this is the point where his voice starts to get to me a little bit. But, I mean, is this actually about strapping cameras to Pigeon? Or is it about something completely dark, which I read about what it potentially could be? I mean, it might be about something very dark. I mean, I don't know if, if that we want to touch on that. Because I, I like, was doing the research and went, okay, let me have a look into this song, what this is about. And then I went, it's about what? How did, wh what? <laughs> if your listeners want to know what it, what it means, you should probably Google that song. Look it up. It's not <laughs> ideal. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very unusual. Uh, lionized. This is the time in the album where I feel that that American rock sound, and, and it's the same, the same can be said about Britpop as well, or, or any specific genre. If you don't change the songs enough and you have a very distinct or unique sound, i.e. the voice, it blends into each other and there's not enough variety between the songs. I could see that. I could see that. And this is the one on which they captured a sound that they then proceeded to move out from in different directions. Did they get more rockier after this? What did they do? They got more rockier in places. It was similar to this, but they broadened it. 
parts of it were rockier, parts of it were easier to listen into. Like they would throw a couple of just straight up acoustic songs. Their acoustic numbers are actually really good. Yeah. Like this is obviously music that was demoed by people who enjoy each other's company genuinely hanging around with a bunch of guitars bouncing stuff off each other. And like a lot of their bigger successes wound up coming from later on songs like Wheat Kings or Ahead by a Century with more of a laid back feel. Once they, I think after this, they realize that they are not going to crack the US market and they're not going to crack the European market. And they just decide to lean in and be the best version of this band that they know how to be and not really care whether the rest of the world keeps up with them anymore. It makes sense, right? Double down on, on what everyone likes you for in your home country. But I mean, they're a huge band in Canada. They are absolutely massive. You know, I was reading, obviously this album got to, to number one. I was reading the fact that they were number five on the top 100 Canadian albums of all time by a guy called Bob Merasuru. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were number nine on the top 102 modern rock albums of all time by 102.1 Edge. That must be yeah. one of your radio stations. And they were certified diamond in Canada in January 2007 for sales of a million copies. So they were, I mean, I cannot understand that, right? If you are doing really well in your home country and you're comfortable and you're selling records, why push yourself? Why push yourself to travel to countries that probably you don't have the bigger fan base at? Why push yourself to change sounds or experiment? and then maybe alienate the fan base that you've created in your home country. I mean, these guys probably financially did really well in Canada. Oh, I have zero doubt, yeah. Especially after this point, because this is their third album that One Foot is trying to market outside of the country, and they're third in a row to do nothing. Yeah. So when their label comes back and goes, all right, well, here's what we're going to do to finally get you 30 minutes of radio play in West Texas the band would quite naturally go, maybe we don't want to go to West Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. We can sell out a 20,000-seat stadium in Winnipeg. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. You know, and they're probably, by this stage, they're probably, you know, family men. Like, how, that's just a good point. How old are they when they made this album? Probably medium, late 20s. Okay. All Their right. first EP came out in 87. Wow, okay. Yeah, a lot of, Canadian bands from this period, not so much after this, or even previous to this, I don't know what it was about this period, were bands who'd been plugging along for a good long time before finally finding a cultural moment, and they're like mid-late 20s, early 30s. Well, that's, yeah, okay. I mean, really, if you're a rock band, you really want to be a rock band when you're young, right? So that early 20s is when you want to really hit it big, travel the world and all this stuff. When you're getting towards 30, you know, you and me both know yeah. You want to settle down and 10.30 is a late night for you. So um, back to these tracks. Can you please tell me what the hell Locked in the Trunk of a Car is? Yes. Locked in the Trunk of a Car is about the kidnapping and assassination of Quebec Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte by separatist terrorists in 1970. Holy cow, I did not know that. <laughs> yep. who, who, who was it? Pierre Laporte, who was a, a provincial cabinet minister. Oh, wow. And uh, Quebec has always had a individualist, separatist-leaning streak. It is also present in its more mainstream political parties. But in uh, 1970s, a terrorist organization of Quebec nationalists kidnapped him, and he was later killed. And oh there was God. briefly uh, martial law declared, 
Oh. Yeah. I did not know that. Eucadians. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing like that has happened in my lifetime. <laughs> Although That's mental. Okay. Every couple or three years, Quebec disagrees with the rest of Canada about something. <laughs> I um I'll tell you what I didn't I, look, I'm not a fan of this off. But there's a bit at the end where he starts screaming, let me out of yeah. the, the trunk. And I'm like, no. It's <laughs> really unusual. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go to, this is where I feel that they're blending into each other a bit. Fully, completely is my best track on the album. That's a great tune. Was it never released? No, it was released. It um, oh, okay. did not it do released. as well as the other um, singles. Oh. Uh, it wound up going to number 65. But also, it was oh. the sixth single released from the album. Got and it. I feel like everybody by this point had listened to it a hundred times from owning it. Yeah. Or did not plan to listen to it at all. Right. Six songs. They released 50% of their album as singles. is is insane. Um, what else have we got? We've got 50 Mission Cap. Yep. That is also a true story. What's that one about? That is about Toronto Maple Leafs defenseman Bill Barilko. Okay. who scored the Stanley Cup winning goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1951. Okay. And then four months later, he got on a plane and he vanished without a trace. And the plane and his body weren't discovered until 1962, wow. which coincidentally was also the next time that the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. No way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's freaky. Wow, okay. <laughs> it has been described by Gord as, like Amelia Earhart, Except that people have heard of Amelia Earhart. <laughs> That's true. That's really yeah. true. I can see that now because, you know, I'm case in point. I had never heard of that. Wow. Okay. Weak Kings, it's all right. It's acoustic. It's not bad. Oof. The wherewithal. What do you think of that song? I think that that song sounds great live. Okay. On the album, though? <laughs> great way to duck that question. Thank you. <laughs> Look, it's, it's not a great song. And El Dorado is, as well. It's, it, El Dorado's not bad. Okay, it's, it's okay. Interesting album, Chris. You know, I like the history behind it. I like, I did not know, I'd never heard of the band. And then for you to sort of fill in the gaps around some of the songs that they had, I never knew about that. And the fact that they're writing about stuff like that is, is excellent. Would I go back to it? Probably not. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> that checks out. Like I said, nobody outside of Canada uh, enjoys uh, the Tragically Hit. So what they... happened to them after this album? After this album? Yeah, like, what's, how many more albums did they have? They were hugely successful, eh? They were wildly successful. Day for Night came out after this. Okay. Equally enormous successful. Trouble at the Hen House came out after that. Also, giant hit, giant album. Yeah, they kept going right up until basically the end, like, after Gord got sick. So what happened there? So he, he, he passed away, unfortunately, right? Yes, a whole lot of cancer. Oh, right. Um, and then for the last year of his life, they did one more tour to say goodbye to fans where they booked a stadium in every decent sized city. And in most of the cities had to add a second date in order to wow. fit everybody in Wow, who wanted to see the last show was in Kingston, which is a town of maybe like a hundred thousand people. Okay. Um, and it's their hometown. And then that was broadcast live on the CBC and, um, Heading home from work after that, people downtown in Calgary have literally never been drunker. <laughs> um, wow. they, did, they did a song a couple of years previous to this where the uh, 
chorus is two fifty for a highball or a buck and a half for a beer. Okay. Which is a happy hour price in like nineteen eighty-nine. Yeah. But in two thousand sixteen it's wildly irresponsible. You're gonna get somebody killed selling liquor that cheaply. <laughs> <laughs> That's great though. <laughs> yeah. And then he uh he went home and he spent time with his family and he wound up doing two more acoustic albums in his home studio. Oh, okay. Before the end. Both of which have moments where they're really beautiful, but mostly are just heartbreaking. Oh, that's sad. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's hard. By the end, he was suffering, but he did what he loved. He made music and he played music and he lived a creative life up until the very end. And at the end of the day, that's all any of us could ask for. Yeah. How old was he when he passed away? My instinct is to say medium late 50s. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say roughly the same. Yeah. These guys, like when, you know, so I was looking into to reviews of the hip. Canada loves these guys. The ratings are exceptionally high. You know, I go to a couple of different websites. They got a 3.68 on Rate Your Music for this album, which is really high with 800 ratings. Yeah. You know, it's, it's overwhelmingly positive for this album and the band in general. I got, I read quotes where they were compared to the Canadian Beatles or the Canadian Nirvana. Like they were that big. What did the band do now post breakup? Are they are they retired or did they form something off the this band? Or I mean, they haven't done anything really high profile uh, in the three years since. But I mean, they are still musicians and they still own a studio, so they probably could at any point. I did read that the best of the tragically hit should be this album plus a couple of other songs. <laughs> <laughs> it came up quite a lot. It was like you know. It should be a two CD with this CD being number one and then everything else on number two. <laughs> I mean, that's an argument that could be made. Yeah. The couple of records that follow this, I will still listen to really regularly, but they were one of those bands, along with Pearl Jam, along with Oasis, as of about 2002, where they would release something and then I would listen to it obsessively and then just like devour it. And this is their true to form. This yeah. is their return to their greatness of former days. And then like six months later, I've completely forgotten that the record ever. Yeah. To be honest, I think that's a, an, a problem we really have now, especially with Spotify. Like I, I love Spotify and it gives me so much access to music, but I find that I churn and burn through albums in the space of a week or two. You know, the Chemical Brothers just released a, a new album and I will hammer that for days and days and days and then oh look a whole bunch of brand new albums to listen to and i'll just cast it aside and i don't know if that's a financial thing that when you used to buy cds they were your pride and glory you took so much like it took you time to save for that cd and then you took great care of it now you know, you pay your, your 10 bucks to Spotify a month and you just get access to so much. I find that I just go through these albums in a different way now, which is a real shame. Yeah, like the number of records that came out last year that I would say had the same kind of impact as something that came out back when I was still paying full price for music. <laughs> yeah. You can probably count on your fingers. Yeah. And some of it might be just me getting old, but some of it is just the fact that there is so much. Yeah, I think we are getting old. And so I look at music very differently now. The one thing I have enjoyed is, you know, Britpop was so big in, in the 90s, there's been nothing since. 
And I find that there's this whole revival of great music coming out of the UK now. You know, we've had to wait 20 odd years to get anything decent out of there, but we're actually now getting some decent music. Did you not have time for the uh, 2005 class of like Franz Ferdinand inspired? Uh, France was okay. You know, the UK was going through that, you know, Snow Patrol, Franz Ferdinand, Coldplay was still, you know, massive. I don't know, 2000s. I don't know what the hell happened in the 2000s, to be honest. I think I was, I think I was mainly into dance music back then. I think I was going down that path as opposed to more guitar and indie music. I think I'd lost, at the end of the 90s, I moved to Australia. Britpop wasn't big over here, despite it being a really ex-palm place to live. I think grunge did help because there was a lot of Australian indie acts that were very large. Powderfinger, Silverchair, Grinspoon, great bands, very heavy guitars, very popular. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened to me in the 2000s. I think I was out clubbing. That checks out. I mean, that's the time yeah. in your life to do it. Yeah, I think it was right age. There were some great clubs in Sydney. So, yeah, you, you'd probably find me in one of them on Saturday night. But, yeah, in terms of the feeling when Gore passed away, you said they shut down Parliament? Yeah, Parliament convened to mourn him officially. That's insane. Um, Trudeau wanted a photograph with him before he went, just to have a photograph of him and, like, a musical icon. Wow. With their arms wrapped around each other. So Gord turned up with a bunch of First Nations activists. Oh, wow. To ask pointed questions about how uh, the reconciliation process was going. Right. Because really, if somebody wants you to be in their photo op, you might as well use that for something. Very, very true. (laughs) And yeah, one in three Canadians wound up watching the last concert. And it was a weirdly good example about why there should be a national television station. What do you mean? Well, I don't think that any cultural event could exist mm-hmm. in like the American system of privately owned networks that would prompt them to just, nope, all programming is canceling. Oh, I see. We are doing this as a nation now. Right, I understand. Yes, I see what you mean. Is he your... I'm going to ask you this. The Tragically Hip, where do they stand in terms of ranking for you for your favorite bands? For my favorite bands? Probably top 10, not necessarily top five. Okay. All right. Cool. They are just a band of this scope, the musical equivalent of comfort food to me by this point in my life. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, okay. They have always been there. I always know what's going on, and they are always there for me when I am in that mood. Would your comfort food be, and this is a weird question, I'll explain why. Would your comfort food be poutine? <laughs> Poutine is quite good. Right. Let me explain that. (laughs) (laughs) So we just did Be Here Now. And there's a review which says, Oasis Be Here Now is like poutine. However, the poutine has everything on it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm reading this and I'm like, what the hell is poutine? And then I find out it's this Canadian dish where it's, it's chips and cheese and gravy. It sounds fantastic. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> it is the best. Get it on your way out of a pub. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, and it's, it just, it's phenomenal. It sounds great. So I need to come to Canada just for that. <laughs> I would heartily recommend it. The place near here will put macaroni and cheese on top. Oh, just yum. For people who look at poutine already and go, no, this is not ridiculous enough. <laughs> I need more nonsense. <laughs> well, that's be here now, basically. Yeah, pretty much. 
What have you got? You got trumpets? Oh, give us a bit of trumpets. What? Check them in. Nobody's telling them they can't. Someone should have. Someone really should have. Yeah, that happens with creative people. That happens. <laughs> like you get to a point where you are too big a deal for people to tell you not to do anything. Yeah. And then you do everything. Yeah, Noel freely admit that everyone around him was saying how good it was and that this was going to be the next big thing. And you know, who's, who's he to argue with them, you know? And they just come off Nipworth and 125,000 people over two nights. Like, whatever they're going to put out, people will lap up. So, very interesting album. And this, you know, Tragically Hip, thank you to you for, like I said, never heard of these guys. It's not for me, but I didn't hate it. You know, there was some good tracks on there. And I like hearing about the meanings behind songs. Even if I don't understand them and, and pick up on them at the front, I like hearing about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also, promoting this, did their own traveling music festival. Oh. For, uh, and they wound up doing it three times because it went down well the first time. Instead of doing a conventional tour, they would find a place just outside of town and they would pitch up with the Another Roadside Attraction tour. And the first time they did it, they did it in 1993 with Midnight Oil, Crash Vegas, Hothouse Flowers, and Daniel Lanois. And the show wound up lasting like eight hours. Jesus. Midnight Oil, they're an Australian band, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah, I thought so. I'm going to assume that they were um, also touring Australia opening for Midnight Oil. Okay. Let's but go with that. I don't have information behind that, but I definitely know that that is a thing that bands do sometimes. Okay, all right. I know that um, one of my favorite Celtic folk rock bands locally, Spirit of the West, plays on a Wonder Stuff record. Oh. Because Wonder Stuff opened for Spirit of the West on a Canadian tour and then vice versa. Ah, uh, okay, got it. And they just liked each other. Fair enough. So they hung out and made some music. I do want to draw attention. I don't usually on this show because... It's a show where we talk about music, not visual art. Love the cover on this album. That cover, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That cover is, it's out there. Yeah. Uh, it is by a Dutch artist uh, named Liev Prins. I'm sure I butchered that name. I would have said it the same. All right. And uh, <laughs> he made it using a Canon color photocopier, 30 different images, segmented, and then pasted together collage style. And then he licensed it to the band, but kept the rights to the actual work. They were not able to get the original piece until the late 90s, where they saw it at a gallery in L.A. Would have cost them a fortune. Yeah, it did cost them a fortune. They bought it. <laughs> <laughs> it's hanging in their studio right yeah, now. Yeah, I know, I know. Look, it's one of these ones that every time you look at it, you see something new, which I love about art. You know, lots and lots of images, but it's very weird. Yeah, it's certainly... And like, not necessarily, and this actually might have hurt them exporting as well, because in Canada, they had already had two gigantic albums that had a bunch of radio hits on. But if you travel to someplace where nobody's ever heard of these guys, that cover does not look like the music that is on that album. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, looking at that album cover, what you would expect to hear. But yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. It is not what you get. <laughs> It's a record for like a weird art rock band. Yeah. yeah but they sure. saw it and went, okay, well, it does look great, so we are going to use it. <laughs> We've already paid for it, so yeah, yeah we better use it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty much everything that... Oh, we should talk about that voice. Okay, cool. You're right. That is a very hit-or-miss voice. Yeah. But also, I will point out that you're releasing a two-hour thing talking about Oasis. When yeah. hit-or-miss voices hit... Are you talking about my voice? No, I'm talking about... <laughs> I'm 
obviously <laughs> talk about Liam. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one actually because the singing on this is not it's not bad. He's a good singer. It just sometimes it was a bit grating for me and some like it may not be his voice but sometimes the way he forced words into the lyrics you know what I, I, who am i to judge singing this is not a sean Ryder, for goodness sake this person can actually sing that's true but i mean artists like sean Ryder or leonard cohen or liam from oasis or bob dylan frequently it's not necessarily a good voice but it's the perfect voice for this yeah yeah i agree yeah i definitely agree with that there are certain people who are not the best singers. However, with the band around them, produce the best sound. And you wouldn't change it. That's another thing. There are better singers than the Liam Gallagher's of Oasis. But you would not swap out Liam no, Gallagher. Yeah, no, I would want to listen to a different singer in Oasis the exact same amount that I would want to watch Liam Gallagher do an album of Sinatra covers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Actually, you know? maybe less. That second thing sounds hilarious. <laughs> It's, I mean, the perfect example is, a, is Queen, you know, like when you get so used to a way that a band sounds, no matter how good the singer is to replace them, you always want the original. Yeah, In fact, I can't think of another example, and I'm sure that I always do this, I always put my big foot in it, but I can't think of an example where a band has reformed or settled on a second singer that has been better than the first. Uh, ACDC fans would probably disagree with you. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm not deeply invested in ACDC, so I would not be able to speak to that. That is true. That is true, and I should know that being in Australia. I mean, Although I'm not an Akadaka fan, but yeah, okay. Yeah, and you weren't in Australia in the 80s. No. I mean, they're still kicking around now. Yeah, that's true. And they still sell out here. They still tour, and they still you know sell out concert events. I bet that they would sell it here as well, frankly. I, oh, really? Wow. I don't know. I think that the audience would be a lot more bemused. <laughs> but if somebody said, Chris, ACDC are playing in town, I go, oh, where are they playing? That big a venue? Good for them. I'll go. That seems like yeah. a show. I'll at the very least have seen something. That's true. That's true. But I guess that brings us pretty close to the end. I close yeah. the show. I don't do out of 10 ratings. I merely ask three questions at the end of the thing. I suspect that I know the answers already, but yep. I'm going to ask anyway. You ever going to listen to Fully Completely again in your life? No. You ever going <laughs> to... <laughs> Sorry. Tragically hip, do not export. Not now. <laughs> not then. <laughs> not ever. Yeah. You don't, you don't need to have tips on where to follow these guys further, do you? Do I have... No, none of the other <laughs> No, absolutely not. And if you had to pick one song to end the episode on, what would you pick? Uh, fill it completely. Solid, we're going to do that. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life, everybody. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. You know how to treat a podcast. It's 2019. Kev, plug all your pluggables. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Our podcast, Britpop Banter, as I said at the start, we're at Britpop Banter on Twitter and Facebook. We are about just coming up on the halfway mark on our top 50 albums of the 90s in the UK. As we've been talking about, we just covered Be Here Now, and we're about to cover, Chris, The Long Pigs. Ooh, I have no idea who that is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best thing about this, The I Long look, Pigs. I look forward to listening along. I have discovered some dope bands through you guys. 
and some not so great bats. I have also discovered Reef through you guys. <laughs> you will never appear on a podcast that does not feature a gratuitous drive-by on the back Reef. I am so surprised you do not like Reef. I would have you pegged as a Reef fan. By the very nature, it's not that far away from the Tragically Hip. They're really not. But the thing about Reef is that the Tragically Hip came out in 1992. Yeah. Where they were originating a style of music. That's true. Oh, Reef were very... I think their first album was maybe 94, the Replenish album. Yeah, they were very a a lift and shift from America, the sounds. And so much of the second half of the 90s were second, third, fourth generation grunge band. That I, I like me some Reef, and I will find a Reef fan one of these days. <laughs> they sold a lot of records. Reef is someone's favorite band. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> I haven't found them yet, but I will. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life, everybody. We'll be back with two weeks to talk about a record that is arguably the literal opposite of this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. Bring me back and Hang me long out in the sun. Get about me I recommend measures for and in it Lover she simply